some time, perhaps years, to deal with those elements and assure ourselves the threat has been defeated. Other than the uh, financing of terrorism, I think that the rest of the legislation was unnecessary and dangerous and takes us back in many ways to where we were when the RCMP had the sole mandate for national security investigations and investigations that they abused in a number of significant ways both in Quebec and in English-speaking Canada so that I think we're going back to some of that we're going back to uh, those agencies having no review over what they're doing and no adequate process other than maybe some moderate independent investigation of complaints so a number of things I think will will at some point or rather get bad without uh, without there being adequate oversight Welcome to Terrorism, Law and Democracy. My name is Khalid M. Safar. This week we continue our examination of Canada's anti-terrorism law and order agenda since September 11th. Today's speakers consider different perspectives on the legal and executive means put in place by the federal government to deal with the international war on terrorism. Ward Elcock is director of CSIS, the Canadian Security Investigations Service. He presents a view on the new investigative and preventative powers of his agency. Kevin Thomas is advisor to the Lubicon Cree Nation of Northern Alberta. He speaks about the experiences of the Lubicon Cree, First Nations, in the face of national security issues in Canada. Our third speaker is lawyer Rocco Galati, advisor to the Canadian Islamic Congress and a vocal critic of Bill C-36. This, this is part four, Canada's, Canada's anti-terrorism anti strategy. First speaker, Ward Elcock, director of CSIS, the Canadian Security Investigation Service, presents a security perspective on Canada and the resources being put into place to prevent and investigate terrorism in Canada and abroad. Two-thirds of our resources were already directed to our counterterrorism program. Also prior to the events of September the 11th, Sunni Islamic extremism was already the major area of investigation within our counterterrorism program and had been for a number of years. The events of September the 11th, therefore, did not change our focus. They only intensified existing investigations against Sunni extremists in Canada and outside of Canada. Hardly, surpri hardly surprising, oops, hardly surprising, oops, sorry, I missed a bit here. In the past, I've been quoted as saying that Canada is a haven for terrorists. The only difficulty is that I never said it. What I have said is that people with such, people with such connections have sought to find haven in Canada. Hardly surprising, given our reputation, as with other wealthy Western democracy, for openness, both for money and for people, along with probably the most multi-ethnic 
population in the world, drawn in part from areas of conflict around the world. The issue is therefore what we as a country do to prevent those who seek such haven from succeeding and has less to do with the fact that they seek to come here. Since the problem is common to all Western democracies, some of which face as big or much bigger challenges than we do. I've also been quoted as saying that CSIS is investigating approximately 50 organizational groups and upwards of 300 individual targets under the counterterrorism program. Those numbers, perhaps because no one had ever provided numbers before, quickly became gospel. What few understood at the time was that those numbers were simply a snapshot at a particular moment intended to respond to those who, depending on which side of the fence they were on, thought that there were either thousands of terrorists in Canada or that we were watching everyone in Canada. The point of the response was that neither was true. While I believe that one member of a terrorist group in Canada is one too many, it is nevertheless important, in my view, to not lose sight of reality as we respond to the events of September the 11th and beyond. To give some context to the numbers, it is important to keep in mind that the number of people we're looking at in Canada is not large whether you look at targets of serious concern or even the broader group that would include less serious targets. It is also important to understand that of the broad spectrum of groups or individuals that qualify as threats to the security of Canada in the sense of our act, few of those groups or individuals pose a threat of a direct terrorist attack in Canada or indeed to our closest neighbor. Finally, I would simply make the point that Mark Twain made many years ago in his comment about lies, damn lies, and statistics. Numbers, however intriguing they appear or however important they may be to a good newspaper story, are often less useful than they appear. On any given day, our number of targets could vary considerably in either direction as we look at or discard or acquire new or different priorities. The numbers on any given day, therefore, reveal little or nothing about our level of success or indeed the nature of the problem. That said, most of the world's terrorist groups, including Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda, have adherents in Canada. Islamic terrorists from Algerian, Egyptian, Libyan and Somali groups also have sympathizers in Canada and it behoves us to deal with that reality. Our efforts are crucial, not only with respect to expectations by our government and by Canadians, but just as significantly in the international arena as the fight against terrorism is an international effort. Most of CSIS's most committed Sunni extremist targets are products of the Jihad. They have fought with the Arab Mujahideen in Afghanistan, Bosnia and Chechnya and have participated in Osama bin Laden's terrorist training camps. Many of the people trained in those camps have since dispersed to 60 countries around the world, including Canada. Indeed, the willingness of Islamic terrorists to use Canada as a staging ground was clearly demonstrated by the case of Ahmed Rassam, who, as you will recall, was convicted in April 2001 for attempting to cross into the United States with bomb-making material. Most of those targets are very security conscious and operate in cell-like structures. The nature of the links between individuals makes them very difficult to investigate. In addition, many of the Canadian-based Sunni extremists are also well-educated and highly computer literate. They take advantage of encrypted emails, cell phones, and satellite communications. Those skills pose a real challenge for CSIS and indeed other intelligence services around the world. Do I believe we have a good grasp on the nature of the threat in Canada? I would say yes. But I have to add the caveat that we're in the business of trying to find out what we don't know. By definition, therefore, there is risk in making such a statement. So that's why the largest part of our assets and resources are dedicated to the investigation of the threat and people are working very, very hard at it. In the weeks following the September 11th attacks, the service operated in an around-the-clock mode to enable us to gauge any change in the threat posed by Sunni Islamic extremist elements in Canada and as time went on to closely monitor the potential for any retaliatory attacks against the United States or coalition partners. As well, we did so to respond to any and all requests for assistance from, in particular, U.S. agencies, of which there have been many. The service remains in a heightened state of alert and we expect to be for the foreseeable future. 
the threat is not going to go away in the short to the medium term, perhaps even the long term. Rather, we believe that the Sunni extremist threat continues to be a real one and that key structures or elements of their organizations remain capable of operating even if we have not seen additional terrorist attacks and even if we are right in believing that the structures of the extremist groups have been degraded or disrupted by the impact of the war and heightened vigilance worldwide. Given what we know about the number of individuals who have gone through bin Laden, al-Qaeda, terrorist training camps, and the fact that many are now entrenched around the world, even though their capacity may have been degraded or disrupted, it will take some time, perhaps years, to deal with those elements and assure ourselves the threat has been defeated. As George Tenet, the director of the CIA, has indicated in public testimony, there are indications that Sunni Islamic extremist groups, such as al-Qaeda, still have plans to strike against the United States and allied targets. The important point here is that the war on terrorism has not yet destroyed al-Qaeda. It remains willing and able to strike. Many al-Qaeda leaders are still at large and are working to reconstitute the organization and resume operations. Turning to some of the challenges that lie ahead, some may think that because I said earlier that the number of terrorist elements in Canada relative to our population is not large, it means that I think that the new anti-terror legislation is unnecessary. Far from it. Indeed, it was a success in terms of prevention the moment it was tabled. As an example, we're already seeing some groups, particularly those engaged in the collection of funds for terrorist organizations, retreating. As well, we've seen individuals we regarded as hardcore members of various groups who are now willing to talk to us and in some cases to assist us. There will, in addition, be some successful prosecutions with the new tools provided under Bill C-36, although the numbers may not be large. In part, this relates to the difficulty of the targets, as I mentioned earlier, but also because terrorism is not always easily amenable to legal processes, as some of the debate in the United States over the past months makes clear. It's often said that terrorists are criminals, absolutely true in the sense that the terrorist act is criminal, but, and it's a very important but, the reality is that many of the people who would be of concern to CSIS will actively avoid committing any crime in Canada so as not to come to the attention of authorities in Canada. There are people who commit criminal acts, some of them minor, which will allow police to deal with them, but that's not true in most cases. As well, in many cases, the only information that might support a prosecution in Canada may be information that's extremely sensitive because of the way in which it was acquired, say a human source operating in a foreign country, or collection using highly classified technology or a sensitive foreign intelligence operation. There may be also cases where the information is obtained from a foreign service, which we would regard as credible for our purposes to undertake an investigation, but which in a Canadian court would be quickly challenged and would not likely provide a basis for a successful prosecution. It may also be true that the individuals here are a small part of a larger conspiracy, more often than not based somewhere else and targeted somewhere else. In such cases, the balance between detection and forewarning and enforcement efforts in Canada becomes crucial. Does one move on a more minor criminal prosecution if a major success is achievable? There are similar issues in the investigation of terrorists. How do we detect a very difficult target and contribute to successful efforts to deal with it around the world if the results of the enforcement efforts here will have the effect of further obscuring the targets and their ongoing plans, both of which are already difficult to find. How then will terrorists be dealt with to the extent that they're identified in Canada? It's not my intention to be exhaustive, and while I'm a lawyer by background, I learned long ago not to give myself legal advice. To canvas some of the possibilities, however, some will be dealt with under immigration legislation. New provisions of the legis immigration legislation will, for example, allow the use of classified information in dealing with refugee claimants in a process analogous to the Section 40.1 process of the existing Immigration Act. As well, Section 40.1 of the existing Immigration Act will allow us to continue to expel those who do not have Canadian citizenship. In the latter case, we have succeeded in expelling some 14 major terrorist targets. Each of these cases was carefully selected 
because the individual was regarded as a major threat. Since it cost about a million dollars to succeed in such, a, in such an investigation and to deal with the ensuing court costs. Those cases have drawn repeated legal challenges, but more resources and a very solid body of successful jurisprudence, particularly after the Supreme Court's decisions concerning the Suraj and Anahani deportations, should allow this option to be used more frequently. As well, where individuals are wanted abroad and can be extradited or are arrested abroad, these will also be options to adopt. In some cases, disruption will be crucial. There are instances in the past months where extensive interviews or other actions have been carried out with targets of concern to try and disrupt any operation they might be planning. Similar tactics may also be necessary in the future, particularly where there are serious warnings, but not enough to justify any other action. However, even here, the decision to undertake such action is frequently not simply a Canadian choice. As I said at the beginning, not all the targets here are major targets, but they may be connected to others abroad who are. As a result, such action has to be coordinated carefully with other foreign agencies. Secondly, such action has to be very carefully considered when one is dealing with a sophisticated, highly motivated terrorist organization. One can quickly lose all one's intelligence access and therefore any ability to monitor targets of concern down the road, because at the end of the day, the major goal is prevention. Finally, as I said before, there will be cases, particularly under the new legislation, which will allow law enforcement agencies to succeed in dealing with terrorist activities. In particular, this, I think, will be true of the provisions relating to fundraising, which is, at the end of the day, the life's blood of many terrorist organizations. In closing, I hope that I've given you a somewhat better appreciation for some of the challenges we're now facing and preparing for in the future. The terrorist threat is, as I said, not going to go away in the foreseeable future, nor likely will some of the issues and challenges that I've spoken about today. Thank you very much. Listening to Ward Elcock, Director of CSIS, the Canadian Security Investigation Service, speaking before the conference Terrorism, Law and Democracy, organized by the Canadian Institute for the Administration of Justice on March 25th of this year. For more information about CSIS and proposed legislation, C55, the Public Security Act, visit their website at www.csis-scrs. .gc.ca Kevin Thomas is an advisor with the Lubicon Cree Nation. He reflects on the challenges faced by First Nations in terms of Canada's national security. I was wondering, first of all, maybe you could give us a, a little sense of, of, of what the concerns are at this juncture in, uh, in the summer of 2002. Uh, there's some very large projects on the table confronting uh, the, 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 the First Nations as a whole in Canada. Well, that's right. There's a uh, broad brush projects on the part of the government, including this First Nations Governance Act, which they've uh, introduced, uh, although it has not yet been passed. And that's a kind of um, imposition of new rules from Ottawa on First Nations on how they should govern themselves, how they should manage themselves, uh, which is being opposed quite strenuously by most First Nations. The difficulty with that kind of uh, broad-brush approach is that it, uh, well, first of all, it suggests that there's mismanagement on the part of all First Nations, which just simply isn't the case. Uh, and secondly, it, uh, it's being billed as a way of giving uh, Native people the tools and great opportunities to uh, change the way they govern themselves. But uh, underneath it all, it says you'll, you'll govern yourself this way or else. You'll do things this way or we'll impose our own 
uh, form of governance on you. That's a problem. Um, behind all that, and uh, sort of in the background at the moment, is the whole question of land rights uh, and Aboriginal title and resources, which always underlies the relationship of First Nations to the Canadian government. Uh, and in a sense, what the Canadian government's been doing lately has been trying to uh, sidestep the, uh, the rights agenda and go into things like this, talking about the you know, governance and uh, economic development without talking about who has rights where and over what. Um, but of course, on a First Nations perspective, the key is, you know, what do we have a right to? Uh, what do we have that you can't take away by a stroke of a pen? And the problem with these kinds of big acts and everything is that uh, they are at the will of the, the Crown, at the will of the government. Uh, First Nations see that, that their relationship is that they have inherent Aboriginal title and rights to lands and resources in Canada and to, to govern themselves. And, and that's at the heart of the relationship between Canada and First Nations. Now, where that intersects with security is it kind of gets to the heart of the question of security because... Um, the Canadian government for the longest time, I think, well, since its inception, in fact, since the settlers first arrived in North America, has seen First Nations in, in, uh, as a security issue. Um, they don't talk about it that way very often, but ultimately the question is uh, they, the First Nations are a competitor or a challenge to the right of Canadians and the Canadian government and Canadian companies to extract resources, to take resources, and to... Uh, take lands that don't belong to them. So in a sense, in a sense uh, they're a threat to the security of Canadian corporations and a threat of uh, the Canadian operations. I don't think they are. I should qualify that, but that is the uh, um, often the, the underlying agenda you get from Ottawa. So if we can, if we take a look at that, at that history and that intersection of, of First Nations um, uh, rights uh, against uh, the established uh, conquest line, and if we look at the public con security concerns that have developed in the last year, um, if we turn to the concrete example that you've worked with, uh, the Lubicon Nation, show us a little bit more how those that how First Nations have been a security concern, and how maybe we could also talk about how the the, the framing. Uh, the the war on terror is between good and evil, and uh, perhaps maybe the picture is a little complicated. I think the language of conquest was one of good and evil as well, of uh, civility versus uncivility, right. values that can be turned around quite quickly. Um, so, if we could, could we start with maybe the Lubicon experience? Maybe you could explain to us uh, the concerns and the hist past experience of the Lubicon uh, nation. Well, the Lubicon experience, uh, I'll give you a quick history, but essentially it's akin to someone walking into your house and uh, taking over the whole thing, taking all the resources, and then saying that uh, you, know, you have to come pleading for, uh, for a handout, um, or better yet, just stay out of the area entirely. The Lubicon people never signed treaty with Canada. They've never ceded their lands or their uh, title in any legally or historically recognized way. And they've... Uh, at this point, they occupy a 10,000-square-kilometer traditional territory uh, where they had a hunting and trapping economy, but that was uh, decimated starting in 1979 by oil and gas exploration. They, they live in northern Alberta, I should add, and of course this is a big oil boom in Alberta, uh, the beginning of it. And to this day, that oil boom has continued. Um, they've taken about uh, maybe $10, $11 billion of resources out of Lubicon territory. The Lubicons haven't seen a penny of that. In fact, the Lubicons live in uh, what you could call third-world conditions. They don't have any running water, over overcrowded housing with all sorts of problems. Uh, they didn't have the same kinds of social problems before 1979. Um, they never had a recorded uh, suicide in that community until 1985. Um, they didn't have problems with alcoholism. The uh, welfare rates were something around 5%, and they're now up around 90 ever since the oil companies moved in. So you can see there's been a real uh, uh, terrible pattern, a terrible history for Lubicon. What it's been all about, of course, is the extraction of resources. You know, the, the control and extraction of those resources is highly profitable. Um, and I should add to that, forestry resources has been another big battleground. But every single resource they can take out of that territory 
they want. And that leaves the Lubicons wondering, well, what the hell is left for us? Um, in response to that, of course, the Lubicons haven't sat still. They've uh, become a problem for, for the extraction of those resources. They've tried to uh, uh, first try legal routes and had very little success there. They, uh, in 1988, blockaded all the access roads into their territory for six days, uh, during which the oil companies lost about a million dollars a day, uh, which ended very quickly when the RCMP moved in and enforced. These are nonviolent, unarmed blockades, but the RCMP moved in with all sorts of attack dogs and guns and uh, extracted all the people and arrested 27 people. Um, in 1990, when uh, logging started, clear-cut logging started there for the first time ever, the, uh, uh, one of the logging camps, uh, which was doing the clear-cutting, uh, was torched uh, in the middle of the night. And again, a bunch of Lubicon people were arrested. Thirteen Lubicons were arrested for that. Uh, they later had to drop the charges when they uh, uh, found the RCMP guilty of wrongdoing and trying to extract evidence uh, under pretty uh, dicey circumstances, um, like taking people out to the to garbage dumps in the middle of the night, kids, and trying to interrogate them on their own, that sort of thing. But basically, that sort of that's a picture of the relationship. We're trying to negotiate a land rights settlement something which does, uh, on the government side, justifies their uh, use of any resources or uh, access to that land. But on the Lubicon side, of course, gives them a, you know, a new economy, uh, proper housing and proper facilities that communities, you know, all communities tend to have, and gives them some base to work from for the future. But getting back to the security question, when Lubicon started to stand up and try to fight the extraction of resources, that's when they became... Uh, a security problem, and that's been the experience across the country. Um, you see that people uh, get criminalized, uh, Native people get criminalized whenever they try to stand up for their rights. Um, at Ipperwash, a good example, of course, where uh, the Native protester Dudley George was shot in 1995, killed uh, by the Ontario Provincial Police. Uh, that was simply standing up for their rights, and everyone recognizes after the fact that they had those rights. But uh, the police shot an unarmed protester just for trying to stand up for that. Do you think that the uh, new pro law projects... Uh, hold it one second. We have... Uh, okay. Um, the engineer is just asking you to uh, speak a little more clearly into the phone or okay. a little, maybe a little louder. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, all right. In <clears throat> restart interview. Um I'm wondering if the, the, the new laws that have public security laws and criminal laws that have been passed or are going to be passed or are being debated, um, if they don't represent a, a change in uh, the strategies being implemented by the, the government to control uh, even more so the economic and social fabric of this country. Um, one of the questions I have, for example, with with going back to the example of the Lubicon Nation, is that uh, in the year of negotiated settlements, there seems to be the will to uh, uh, force something uh, on on the people in order to take away the very rights that prove problematic in the first place. Um, just to be to, to draw a parallel, the struggle that you've described since 1979, it's almost as long as the existence of the Charter of Rights in Canada, uh, something that we would think would go flying in the face of the corporate development of, uh, of our country. I'm wondering if, um, if we're not seeing a, a, a new kind of ideological phase coming out of the corporate and government structure vis-a-vis -vis not only First Nations but citizens in general in Canada in terms of, of uh, the price we're willing to pay to maintain the system, particularly the economic system. Uh, what what can do you see what I'm what I'm trying to? Yeah, I think one of the things which this new kind of security legislation does is it starts to strip away the, uh, the Canadian myth that uh, we have this nice country where everyone gets along and there's not really big schisms between uh, people except maybe with Quebec. Um, the uh, the thing is that I think First Nations have been living with that for a very very long time. The Canadian myth doesn't mean a lot up in uh, Lubicon Lake. They've uh, realized they've, they've got an occupying force in their in their country, and that they're being uh, you know subjected to the kind of oppression most Canadians would um, 
would not accept if it was happening to themselves. The thing about the new security legislation, of course, is I think it justifies a lot of things that they did covertly for years and years. Um, the uh, counter-subversion branch at, at uh, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, the uh, old RCMP Dirty Tricks Brigades, all those kinds of things, would probably find themselves being uh, legal these days, at least accepted. One of the uh, other experiences that's been important, if we if we look not only at the Lubicon Nation, but uh, experiences that have marked marked history, uh, when it comes to to uh, First Nations uh, uh, reclamations uh, and rights, we're looking at tradition, we're looking at ideologies, we're looking at religions. Um, Again, things that uh, uh, cultures and and na nationhoods that are are maybe beyond simp those kinds of categories, but political actions. If we look at Oka, if we look at uh, Iprawash, if we look at uh, Gustafsson, different kinds of, con of 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 backgrounds, different kinds of of uh, incidences, um, and in different kinds of, of of consequences. But if we look at those, there is definitely a, an ideological, political, and religious uh, motivation and reclamation happening in those incidences, and that goes to the very heart of the criminalization of 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 of, of so-called terrorist acts. Uh, the motivation is important and the effect on public or economic activity is important. And we've seen that blockades have been a very important uh, element in the need to get attention and get some dialogue restarted with the Canadian government. Um, do you see new risks? Do you see uh, the First Nations um, um, movements and uh, uh, possible struggles in the future uh, being um, constricted by the new legislation? Yeah, I think that the, uh, the trick is that uh, if, if the First Nations are excluded from other kinds of uh, redress, that is, if negotiated settlements aren't working, if the courts are not working to, to enforce Aboriginal rights and title, uh, if the governments are wor working against Aboriginal rights and Aboriginal title, uh, then First Nations have got to find other means of pushing their case. They can't just roll over and play dead. So when they do take actions, direct actions, such as the fishing at uh, Burnt Church or, uh, or blockades like they had to uh, erect at uh, Lubicon or, or taking over a park as they did at Ipperwash, if those things are the only route that they have to take, uh, and which I see as being legitimate, but if that's the route they have to go, then the answer from the uh, security legislation and from the government's agenda is that uh, what they need to do is criminalize those acts so that they're no longer accepted routes to go. And criminalization, of course, has been the, uh, uh, the key to security legislation around the world. I know, uh, you know, for instance, in Northern Ireland, when the, uh, when the uh, nationalists were fighting there, the key issue was always criminalization. If we can turn them from being political to being criminals, then we can win the fight. And that was the British government's response and the theory behind it, which has been exported around the world. Here in Canada, that's the same idea. We're not dealing with, in Bird Church with people asserting legitimate rights. Uh, we're talking about criminals who are breaking the law. And as soon as the dialogue turns to uh, uh, First Nations as criminals, then I think you've begun to lose the fight. So I'm very concerned about this kind of uh, legislation, which looks at things, uh, any kind of real challenge, disruption, to uh, the economic life of this country as being a criminal act, as being a terrorist-type act, um, that's dangerous because First Nations, uh, in a lot of instances, have to disrupt the economic life of this country. Um, they have to block the uh, extraction of resources from their territories, or there isn't going to be anything left uh, for them to negotiate. So, yeah, I see it as being a very big problem. Secondly, I see the whole idea of a security agenda uh, period has been a problem in, in Canada, because uh, I mean, security, of course, is, you have to question the security of what. Uh, in this case, we're talking security of the status quo. Well, status quo is not acceptable to First Nations. It's not, uh, it's not something which has benefited them. It's uh, something which has been terrible for them. And in that kind of instance, uh, yeah, we've got to challenge the status quo. We've got to make it insecure. Uh, otherwise, nothing's going to change. So an, uh, a perception or a focus on security, per se, is a, is a real problem. Um, there's, there's all sorts of kinds of security, and security for whom? In this case, the First Nations security is uh, uh, being counterposed to, to uh, the Canadian
governments and Canadian companies security. And unfortunately, the two haven't found a way to coexist yet. The uh, public security, one last question, is the, the public security uh, agenda goes hand in hand with uh, uh, a very strong uh, and what seems a very strong uh, corporatist globalizing uh, agenda. One that if you look to the south, to, uh, to the American internationalism announced by George Bush, uh, it's uh, if you if you look at the 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 way the international uh, economic agenda is being moved, um, the rejection of Kyoto, uh, the putting in doubt of very minor protocols that at the time ten years ago didn't seem to be sufficient uh, to respond to the crisis we saw then. Um, I'm wondering if 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 as you say, this Canadian myth is dissolving if we're seeing even more truly so that uh, our political, social, uh, democratic, so-called democratic values really um, take second place to economic motivation and this status quo that hasn't uh, been so good for everybody. I think that the, uh, the people who are getting rich off of the status quo have, uh, have decided the government uh, as such doesn't have much of a role. Democracy doesn't have much of a role. I mean, they're all for the idea of free elections and all that. This, this is not a problem as long as the powers the government has are constrained. So we don't want any more regulation. The role government does have in that kind of free market system uh, that is being promoted worldwide, the role that government uh, is still allowed is policing. Because at some point people get upset when they don't have a share of the pie, and we need policing to ensure that, that, uh, um, that they don't do anything about it. So security is one agenda still allowed for the government, one power still allowed, but there's not a lot of other ones allowed. And that's, uh, I mean, it's, this is not a sort of a secret agenda or a hidden agenda from on the part of uh, companies. It's what they lobby for quite actively and talk about in the papers every day. So I see uh, the security agenda here in Canada as being just part and parcel of that, that uh, uh, first and foremost we've got to protect our ability to take whatever resources we want. And if First Nations get in the way of that, or if uh, other Canadians get in the way of that, then, uh, then we've got to do something about it. And that's when we want the state to jump in. Kevin Thomas is advisor to the Lubicon Nation. You've been listening to an interview with Kevin Thomas, an advisor with the Lubicon Cree Nation of Northern Alberta. For more information about the Lubicon Cree and the Friends of the Lubicon, visit the Friends of the Lubicon website at www.tau.ca backslash umlaut fol. That's tau, T-A-O dot C-A backslash little squiggly line fol. speaker is lawyer Rocco Galati. He is counsel for the Canadian Islamic Congress and has been a vocal critic of Bill C-36. Mr. Galati, welcome to our show and thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you for having me. What is the declared purpose of Bill C-36? What is the declared purpose? That's right. Well, it, it, it purports to be an anti-terrorism law and in a small measure it is in fact that. But unfortunately, it's much more than that, and uh, there is a an overly broad and hidden agenda to C-36, which is very, very disturbing. Uh, parts of C-80, C-36 were, in fact, uh, drafted long before September 11th, and the bill uh, purports to be reacting to the events of September 11th in New York City. However... The, for instance, the deregistration of charities, which was C16, we know was on uh, on the table last year, and we uh, hearings were heard in July, May, and July of uh, 2001. The bill itself, as it is, is disturbing in its severely overly broad 
characterization of what constitutes a terrorist act. So your listeners should know and should be shocked to know that illegal and illegal strikes and work stoppages, consumer and market boycotts, anti-globalization protests, and general dissent are, are, are defined as terrorist acts within the bill. Are these defined as terrorist acts specifically? Well, by, by logical uh, reading of the, of the definition of a terrorist act, mm-hmm. if, you want, if you want me to refer to it, uh, it states that uh, 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 it includes a, a conspiracy attempt or threat to commit any, any act or omission, uh, but does not include an act or omission that is committed during, I'm sorry, uh, that is illegal, is lawful advocacy, protest, dissent, or stoppage of work. It says lawful. So illegal strikes that cause any property damage, that interfere with public facilities, including economic security, are defined by definition as terrorist acts. Mm-hmm. Now, a legal strike can also be a terrorist act if it interferes with essential services and the use of public facilities. Now, it's hard to imagine any protest or even legal strike that goes out onto the street in terms of picket lines and mass mass protests that's not going to interfere with public facilities in terms of roads and whatnot. So it's really open to interpretation here. No, it's quite clear. If you disrupt the economic order and if you cause uh, uh, property damage or if you interfere with uh, essential service facility or system, whether public or private, it's 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 a terrorist act. There's no interpretation about it. It's quite clear. It catches political dissent. Turning to what the government is claiming this um, this act is meant to do, what effect do you think that this will have on actual on actual terrorist activities, on things that we would that perhaps everyone could agree are terrorist activities? Will this? I guess what I'm asking is, will this work to actually make Canada safer? Well, I have my doubts. In some of the cases I've done under the Immigration Act as counsel, I've cross-examined CSIS officers, and they have admitted under under cross-examination that there is no expert evidence to show that dealing with terrorists by way of secret trials, as this bill is going to do, by way of forfeiture of property and jailing people in secret trials through uh, uh, an atmosphere of fear, anxiety, and paranoia is more efficient than dealing with terrorism in a free and open society. In fact, examples tend to go to the contrary. Egypt in 1981, after the assassination of Anwar Sadat, imposed an emergency law, which they said was going to be temporary, but which is still on the books. In the 20 years in Egypt, the problem of terrorism has multiplied a thousandfold. They have a much worse terrorism problem today after 20 years of emergency legislation than they did in 1981. So clearly it does not work necessarily. Hmm. Given these examples, why is the Canadian government taking these steps? Why have they drafted this bill? I think, uh, I think uh, quite uh, frankly that uh, this bill does have laced in it a, a, a conscious and uh, unacceptable attempt to stifle political dissent, and they are uh, trying to monopolize on the unfortunate and uh, abominable events in New York City on September 11th. It's my view and the view of some of the clients I represent that it is immoral to talk about stifling economic order and uh, employment uh, work stoppages and public protest under the guise of stopping the kind of terrorist attack that New York suffered on September 11th. They are simply taking advantage of the situation to slide through an omnibus bill that's going to get rid of all our civil liberties as we've known them from the Magna Carta up to the Canadian Charter of Rights. A lot of these provisions are unacceptable. For instance, they can arrest you and detain you without charge for 72 hours and do this on a revolving door. So you come out and then they pick you up again. Well, that's, that's martial law. You do not have a right to be presumed innocent. You have to, you have to answer questions, your right to silence, to self-incrimination, to uh, arbitrary arrest. They all go out the window. 
Mr. Galetti, in the Bill C-60, there was a clause about the evidence. What is the uh, now new status of the evidence presented in, the, in this bill? This bill uses the same procedure as the current immigration and charity law terrorism bill. That is, Canadian citizens, let's be clear, it's not just brown-skinned Muslims and Arabs who are foreigners now. Canadian citizens are going to have their property seized and forfeited and are going to be charged, convicted, and sentenced to jail without ever seeing the actual evidence against them. The evidence against them will only be seen by the judge and presented to the prosecutor. It will be suppressed based on national security. And where would they get this evidence? Often rumor, innuendo, other countries, dictatorships. So Egypt says, we know this guy is a terrorist, but you never get to see. That's the evidence they're getting. So really, this is going to give the government sweeping powers over individuals. This bill is going to give the government the same power uh, that the king in France had with uh, Lettre de Cachet before the French Revolution. This power, this, this bill essentially takes us back to uh, medieval uh, church inquisition in terms of an absence of civil rights and charter rights. Now, we know that some civil groups are concerned about this bill, but perhaps the media hasn't presented it the way you are talking about it, so we're really kept in the dark here. Well, there's nothing to be kept in the dark about. I'm, I'm quite upset at not only the MPs and the various professional bodies, but also at the media, that nobody, and I say this with all due respect to all of them, very few people have actually sat down to chew over the bill. All they've done is digested summaries of the bill from various groups. But if you read the actual bill, it's clear as a bell that a lot of this bill has nothing to do with terrorism. For instance, they, they've amended the Official Secrets Act to, to describe uh, an act that's prejudicial to the safety or interests of the state to include if a person, and I'm quoting here, adversely affects the stability of the Canadian economy, the financial system, or any financial market in Canada without reasonable economic or financial justification, end quote. So if a person calls for a boycott, boycott of a publicly traded company or a stock market on ethical, environmental, or other reasons that it's not reasonably economic or financial, that is an act of terrorism. This is how far this bill goes. And and what was the, the inspiration behind it? I mean, the Canadian government and our Canadian laws were known to be for being very liberal and progressive. And and suddenly, I would say, overnight, we go to the other extreme. So well, this must have been a process developing over some period of time. Can you well, explain to me what happened? Yes, it's, it's very clear that the government has taken the opportunity to put a, a closet in this bill that makes it easier to push forward without any dissent its globalization agenda over economic treaties. If you read this bill, a lot of what is there is meant to stifle APEC protests, Quebec City protests, anti-logging protests, nat native rights protests, all to pave the way for complete and unmitigated non-resistance to globalization because a lot of these provisions are st strictly economic crimes that one sees in a dictatorship. And so there is absolutely no basis for these provisions with respect to not being able to, for instance, call for a boycott on anything but reasonable economic and financial justification. What does that have to do with violent terrorist attacks? Absolutely nothing. So people should be seeing through this bill. Now, uh, RCMP Commissioner Zarkardelli was asked and reported to have replied the other day, could this anti-terrorism bill have been used against the protesters in Quebec City? And he said, although he, d he didn't think he would, yes, it could have been used against the protesters. Well, there's your answer right there. How do peaceful protesters at an anti-globalization protest come under as terrorists? 
Well, it's, it's really of great concern now that we understand more about the bill. Since you're talking about globalization and financial issues, can you tell us how the bill will deal with the money that charitable organizations can channel to other parts of the country or outside the country? Because I understand it gives the, uh, the government control over. Yes. Uh, well, what it does is it implement, it fully implements the terms of C-16, which is the charities uh, uh, legislation and what basically it means is that uh, any organization or person who who ha- whose resources any part of their resources directly or indirectly and this is another part of the language that's offensive in this bill directly or indirectly ends up in the hands of any terrorist organization or persons or supporters whether the organization or person that forwards the resources knows or not then you're caught as a part, as a facilitator of terrorism, there is a, a criminal uh, sanction here for facilitators of terrorism, and in the definition, uh, it states that you are guilty of facilitating terrorism, whether you had knowledge or not, which goes contrary to the very essence of criminal liability in Canada, common law, and under the Charter. To, in order to be criminally liable for any offense in our tradition, in our law, you have to have knowledge and intent. Now, this law is saying, no, no, even if you don't know that you're helping terrorists, you're guilty anyway. And when we put you on trial, we won't necessarily give you all the evidence as to why you're guilty, even the, even though you didn't know you were, you were helping them. Now, I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say these are provisions that one would expect in a police state, not a constitutional democracy like Canada. Mr. Galati, are there enough lawyers in Canada that are objecting to this bill because it seems like it's rushing through Parliament, it's uh, gaining uh, the agreement of uh, the public because it's under the banner of fighting terrorism, and this is a sensitive issue now, but how about professionals? Well, professionals can only do so much. I mean, you know, when professionals make their submissions, there's often a cynical sort of hesitancy to listen to to them because they're regarded as professionals, and this is what they do. Sure, uh, uh, civil libertarians are speaking out against this bill, uh, but the people who are supposed to make the government publicly accounting, and I, for instance, I cite the accountable, I cite the press, and I cite, I cite uh, uh, even in the, the MPs themselves, uh, and I have to say this with respect, I find the MPs in Ottawa on this issue cowardly and lazy. Most of the ones I have spoken to or have been dealing with or here on TV, it is obvious to me that they have not read the bill. Mm-hmm. People read summaries, but they're not reading the bill, otherwise they would be alarmed. Within Parliament, it seems that the strongest dissent is people who are urging that there be a sunset clause. What do you think? What do you think? Um, how would sunset clauses make this a better bill, or would they affect it in any way? Well, it would. It, it would certainly make the the bill temporary in its uh, gouging and devastating our civil liberties. But even a sunset clause is not enough. What needs to be done to this bill is all reference to civil dissent, economic dissent protest has to be removed from here as a terrorist act. It's immoral and offensive that we can say that our our, our cherished constitutional rights to freedom of expression uh, and economic issues are, are terrorist acts. Second of all, certain of these provisions, like the arbitrary arrest, preventive arrests, should not be part of the general criminal law. They should be transferred over into the Emergencies Act. These are emergency provisions where there's uh, there's mechanisms under the Emergencies Act that these kinds of arrests and these kinds of procedures are uh, continually monitored by a parliamentary committee. There's a, a report on the activities and who's, who would be arrested, how many people are being arrested, and so that there's parliamentary supervision. To make preventive arrests as part of your general police powers turns your society into a permanent police state. Mr. Gilati, I understand that in the States, Amnesty International is concerned about the possibility that pressure techniques, in other words, torture, may be used while questioning detainees. 
what is the situation with this new bill? You mentioned that they can detain people, keep them for 72 hours, and then through a revolving door policy, they would be out with no, no excuses and no explanation given. What happens during those 72 hours? I mean, are, is there something to uh, safeguard the rights of the detainees? Well, uh, just on your earlier point, not only not only is there talk that of abuses, but in fact, the FBI there's there's talk within the United States of requesting legal permission to torture. That's come out in the last two weeks. Uh, I hope to God that then that's never granted by Congress, but that's that's where that discussion is. Uh, with respect to what safeguards are there? Well, what safeguards can there be if you get arrested without any uh, arrest? If you if you can be detained without cause for 72 hours without being told why and you're held incognito for 72 hours and then you're released and then you you can be picked up two hours later for another 72 hours and then again and again well I find that to be a form of torture don't you? I was astonished to even be able to read in the Globe and Mail that they called various experts at universities and that people were seriously contemplating and discussing what would happen if someone tortured. I found it incredible that people felt able to discuss as though it was somehow reasonable that possibly in this circumstance we could torture people. How have we even got to the point where legal experts feel that we could even discuss the idea that we might be able to torture people in some circumstances? Well, look, legal experts in Nazi Germany discuss the issues of what kind of experiments could be physically conducted, right? Mm. There's your answer. I mean, how could we? It's immoral. It's, it, there are international treaties and conventions against torture, even in wartime. You, you're not supposed to torture prisoners of war. How can we be discussing torture, even rationally, in peacetime, in a free and democratic society, even in, even in the wake of a terrorist threat? We, we make it sound like terrorism was just born on September 11th. Mm. Various free and democratic societies have dealt with the abomination of terrorism without relinquishing all civil liberties and all civil rights. What kind of measures have they taken? What are some examples? Well, I mean, you have to take police action, intelligence gathering, and you have to stomp it out for what it is. It's a vicious criminal act for political, economic, religious, and social reasons. But it does not warrant the complete suspension of the entire system of government that we have, the entire system, the entire society that's evolved in the West. Otherwise, those 19 murdering terrorists in New York City in one act of terrorism have succeeded in removing the uh, civil rights and civil liberties of 300 million North Americans that took 700 years from the Magna Carta to the Charter of Rights in Canada to attain through centuries of struggle. Isn't that what North America stood for, was the land of freedom? Isn't that what people from all over the world immigrated here to do, was to escape police states and oppressive regimes right up until the Second World War in Europe and come here where we had established uh, a country built on civil liberties and civil rights and constitutional norms and constitutional democracy? What, we lost that overnight? Are we mad? It's really very serious, and I'm wondering what could be done now. The Minister of Justice is says, well, we are flexible, we, we could uh, amend the bill, but... What 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 are we going to do? I mean, who who's going to act now, and how do we make our voices heard? I, I think people have to contact their MPs. People have to be loud and clear about their objection. It's a, I, I applaud the government for moving to criminalize specifically acts of terrorism, and I applaud the government for moving to criminalize the financing of terrorism. But they should be doing so as part of our general criminal law not some secret police state procedure unto itself, which is what this bill is. We as a free and open society like the Italians and the French and the Spanish can deal with terrorism and still maintain our civil liberties. Now, you, you mentioned that some countries, and you gave an example, uh, Egypt, uh, have 
Im- introduced new new laws, and of course we we know that new those new laws didn't work. But if we go to some European countries, you mentioned uh, France. Do you think they introduced new laws after the some terrorist attacks that happened there recently? How did they deal with with situation? Well, I'm not familiar with all their provisions, but I know, for instance, I'm more familiar with the Italian experience that. Uh, Uh, such drastic laws were not implemented. Security measures that were implemented in Italy were later regretted. Uh, uh, terrorism has been around from for a long time. You know, it's uh, North America has now become the victim of it recently. Europeans have been dealing with it. Societies uh, have been deal- dealing with it. Uh, we don't need uh, secret provisions and secret trials. We don't need to revert to tribalism and star chambers to deal with terrorism. We we know historically what that leads to. And uh, Benjamin Franklin is quoted to have said that those who would trade in their liberties for security deserve neither liberty nor security, nor will they attain either. Mr. Galletti, it seems that those terrorist acts, they are were motivated politically and Now we are rushing to introduce measures like that have to do with law. They're nothing. They're not meeting any grievances. They're not looking any at a political situation. Is our government grasping this difference that that there is a difference between a politically uh, motivated act and a criminal act? Well, I'm. I- I'm a lawyer, I'm not a politician, and I'm not a philosopher, so I, I, I'm not uh, qualified to get into the broader philosophical issues of, uh, uh, of the underlying policies of terrorism and all of that. Uh, suffice it to say that I have, I have, on behalf of several clients in making representations, uh, come up with a one-line definition, a universal definition, I think, of what terrorism is, and in my view terrorism is uh, a criminal a criminal matter and i define terrorism as the threat or use of violence and arms by an un- by an armed group or individual against an unarmed group or individual for political racial religious social or economic reasons including state terrorism any time an armed individual terrorizes or inflicts violence on an ar- on an unarmed innocent civilian individual or group that's terrorism and and that is a criminal matter now i'm not qualified to deal with the larger pictures in the world and the geopolitical uh, conflicts but all i know is that as a constitutional lawyer that this bill under the guise of dealing with criminals who attacked in new york city uh, uh murderers who terrorized new york city is actually suppressing the civil liberties of all Canadians for economic and social and political reasons that have nothing to do with a violent threat against Canadians. Some of the provisions deal with terrorism as we understand it and, and as we need to deal with it in the face of New York on September 11th. A lot of these other provisions are just to keep Canadian citizens under a screw without any of their civil liberties that they've enjoyed and uh, up to the Canadian Charter of Rights. You've been listening to an interview with lawyer Rocco Galati, opponent of Bill C-36 and counsel for the Canadian Islamic Congress. The interview was conducted by CKUT's own Sama Elibari. For more information about the Canadian Islamic Congress, visit their website at www. Canadian Islamic Congress one word dot com This has been part four Canada's anti-terrorism strategy of the documentary series Terrorism, Law and Democracy which explores the theme of terrorism and the rule of law through international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11th and the ongoing international campaign against terror. In this part four, we have continued to explore Bill C-36, an act to amend the Criminal Code, the Official Secrets Act, the Canadian Evidence Act, 
the Proceeds of Crime Money Laundering Act and other acts, and to enact measures respecting the registration of charities in order to combat terrorism. This new law is at the heart of the government's national strategy to combat terrorism. It aims to interdict terrorist acts, investigate, identify and dismantle terrorist infrastructures and groups with the objectives of securing public safety and of preventing damage to economic activity by expanding the powers of law enforcement and national security agencies. It defines terrorist activities in groups. It provides far-reaching investigative tools to identify and prosecute not only such entities, but those who knowingly support or facilitate, financially or otherwise, such activities. It creates new sentences and provisions for terrorist offenses committed in or out of Canada. It provides for preventative arrest, and it compels individuals with relevant information to provide that information before a judge. For more information about Canada's anti-terrorism strategy and Bill C-36, you can visit the Department of Justice website at www.canada.justice.gc.ca or you can visit the House of Commons website at www.parl.gc.ca backslash 37. I was Khalid. This has been a long-term memory radio presentation from CKUT 90.3 FM. Join us next time for part five, the global impact of September 11th. Yeah.